Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. The Beatles have 14 days to record a brand new album before playing in front of a live UK audience. In this three-part episode of Nothing Is Real, we're going to cover Rubber Soul, because uh, we've, we've heard the story before, haven't we, Stephen? We have. This seems to be a repeating story. Rubber Soul is this rightfully acclaimed Beatles classic, and it gets this label which... I'm not totally convinced about that it's their first classic album. Hmm. Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons why that's true and a couple of reasons why it kind of happens by accident. And we'll, we'll talk about that. But what is certainly true as we look through this story of Rubber Soul is that nothing was particularly planned. Sound familiar. And it happens very, very fast. <laughs> it does sound familiar. And I mean, you know, we're, we're now in the, the, the Beatles get back, post get back universe. And of course, they had every reason to assume they could pull something out of thin air in two or three weeks because that is what they had done throughout their career. This is this is this is the thing. This is what they did. They worked best under pressure, and I mean that's I think it's uh, you, you know mentioned several times during Get Back. You know the best things we do aren't planned, just like us. When our backs are against the wall, etc., etc., etc. Yes. Yeah, but obviously at this point in time, which is the end of 1965, the uh, the motivations and the interband feelings, and obviously the supervision from Mr. Epstein are all quite different. Yes, so they they they're coming off the back of a tour. They have a short period. They have to get a Christmas album. They have to get a Christmas single, and then they're going to go off and start touring again. So they're still on that treadmill. Um, if you look at the album that came before this, we we did an episode on Help and. We, we sort of commented that this is a bit of a transitional album help where they're, they're sort of a bit of a mishmash. And this is a different thing uh, that emerges from these sessions. But going in, I'm not sure that certainly the public were not necessarily expecting it to be anything different. Well, I, I know like our very first episode way back in, I think it was 1987, we did our first episode, uh, right uh, was then, on the yeah. Help album. <laughs> and I, 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 if memory serves, I said something rather controversial, which is I prefer the Help album to Rubber Soul. And I, I don't think I would put Rubber Soul in my top five Beatles albums. Now, I know saying something is in your bottom half Beatles album, it's still preferable to thousands of other albums. But I, I, I think I prefer Help to Rubber Soul. I certainly don't think Rubber Soul is in my top five. Frankly, I'm surprised this podcast is 
lasted as long as it has. <laughs> with that is it in of, your top five? With that type of deliberately provocative uh, take. Oh, you know me. I just like to stir it up a little bit. Yeah. I, I think. I think. I think. I think. I think there's a couple of things that let Rubber Soul. It's just I. Uh, I don't know. Well, we we can tease this out as we go along. You obviously disagree. I do disagree. I think. I. I think there's a maturity in the songwriting. I think you know. George is starting to come into his own. So what's not to love? Um, <laughs> yeah, I just think it's, it's just, it, it, it ushers in a new sort of, it's a new phase Beatles album, if you will. It is, it is a new phase Beatles album. Jeez, everything, everything is get back now when you, when you look at it. Um, the, you know, there, there's this notion that the Beatles across their lifespan were kind of three different bands, you know, they were kind of the first three years, the intermediate three years, and then the last kind of three years-ish, yeah. two and a half, three years. Uh, and as you say, this is kind of the end of that first period of, of Beatles that kind of takes you from Please Please Me. And then, you know, you kind of phase two, this this album kind of straddles, you know, if you talk, say, Rubber Soul up until the end of Magical Mystery Tour, and then there's kind of 68, 69, 70 is kind of the last phase. So this is, as you say, a, a transitional album. And there's a lot of things that are changing at this time. And I suppose... One of the things is um, lots of tea, you know, lots of uh, lots of tea, lots of well, that uh, Bob Dylan introduced them to tea. Exactly, exactly. Well, this is this is something that uh, that that Ringo, of all people, has a quote where he says, "Grass was really influential in a lot of our changes, especially with the writers." And this is like interesting that he talks about the other three as the writers and because they were writing different mm. material we were playing differently we were expanding in all areas of our lives opening up to a lot of different attitudes i feel we made it on love songs now we get to rubber soul and begin stretching the writing and the playing a lot more that was the departure record a lot of other influences were coming down and going on the record and i think you know that that's clearly the case that there are other bands have come into the picture we touched on this in the help episode i think you know you had a the Stones were emerging, the Birds were emerging, Bob Dylan was emerging, the charts were, were full of potential rivals. And the Help album, I think, they were slightly behind the curve at that point. Um, mm. uh, I think that's what we concluded, despite your arguing to the contrary. Uh, <laughs> there is a rivalry here that I think they, they, they need to kind of respond to. And the Dynamite Wade I, yeah, I think, well, I, yeah, I think that's a good point. And I mean, we, you know, we've also, it's, it's funny that we're only getting onto Rubber Soul now because we've also talked about Beatles for Sale in the past. And I think Beatles for Sale and Help, you know, still has the the retro, you know, covers. And yeah. Rubber Soul, I think, is potentially the first Beatles album where they are uh, influenced by stuff that is happening that's not, you know, pre-Beatles or rock and roll era. It's, their, it's the first time you can actually see a full-on, uh, contemporary influence. There's a bit of it on help. You know, you've got a Hydra Love Away is a bit Dylan-esque, but this album, as you say, you know, you can you can point to bits of it and say Dylan. You can point to other bits of it and say, oh yeah, the birds. And and the birds are you know brand new at that point. Yeah, They've only come yeah. around just a few months earlier. Um, so so this is a, an album where you know things are starting to get a bit more. Uh, circular, where they've influenced the world. The world is influencing them back, and now you can see it all going through its own kind of lens, its own kind of circuit. I think I, I, I think that's right. And I think the, the big thing is they are very aware of this. So mm. it, it seems to me this is the point at which they start to realize they are influencing other people. Um, they are actually having an effect beyond the screaming girls at the Adelphi or wherever, you know, that that, that mm. there is a wider import to what they're, they're doing. And... Um, 
I suppose maybe some of that in particular comes from Paul, who's doing his Man About Town soaking up culture like a sponge um, act. But uh, also the fact, as you say, they're also interacting with other groups. You know, they, they meet the birds in 1965. They go to a, a session. Um, they're very aware of the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys are, are developing beyond the sort of surf and cars and girls uh, of their early songs. Yeah. So I think there is this, this awareness of um, the wider cultural impact of what they're what they're doing. Plus, yeah. I, I don't I genuinely think you can't underestimate the fact that this is George starting to uh, develop as a songwriter. Well, yeah, you've a you've a quote here from George. She says uh, songwriting at the time of Rubber Soul for me was a bit frightening because John and Paul have been writing since they were three years old. It was hard to come in suddenly and write songs. They had a lot of practice. They'd written most of their bad songs before we'd even gotten to a recording studio. I had to come from nowhere and start writing and have something with at least enough quality to put on the record alongside all the wondrous hits. It was very hard. I like that wondrous hits. I, I, I certainly do think that Rubber Soul, Georgia songs are for the first time. Oh, that's who this guy is, you know? I think so. He, his, he, he starts to develop a personality, I think, as a as a songwriter and uh but I, I i think that's a very important point that he makes is that he had to make his mistakes or write his yeah early subpar songs in 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 public and uh yeah. you know none of his songs are as terrible as i've lost my little girl or uh thinking of lincoln or <laughs> you know they got they got all those out of the way he had to come you know don't bother me is a decent song um but oh, he but this is know, you've you've put uh, you've put thinking of lincoln in my head now God, that's that's my earworm for the day. It's a great song. Great song. <laughs> no? uh, so um, so yeah, it is, it's still part of Paul's set to this very day. No, it's not. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think I think George's appearance as a uh, as a songwriter is here. His character is starting to emerge. So if we have a little look at the timeline, there's lots of things going on here. As we say, there's the writing, there's the production, there's kind of the experience of the four Beatles, there's the drugs, there's the trousers, there's everything. It kind of comes to a, a head in, in, in Rubber Soul. And if we, if we kind of look at the timeline backwards, the album comes out on December the 3rd, 1965 in the UK. Uh, the US version comes out three days later on December the 6th in the USA. And if you're... You know, if you've got an album that is coming out on December the 3rd, obviously you should start recording it on October the 12th, uh, less than two months earlier. Yes. And But even even before that, we sh you know, there, there are there from October the 12th, there are 15 sessions, 14 for Rubber Soul and one for We Can Work It Out, the, the single that comes out at the same time with the Day Tripper um, to get that done from October the 12th. But the actual start of Rubber Soul um if, if, if we rewind back a little bit, is there's like a session zero back in June uh, 17th, 1965, when they're trying to bring the Help album into land and they record Wait. So if we, if, if we go back to those Help sessions, again, they're struggling to fill the quota of 14 songs that they need uh, for this, this album. Um, so this is the 17th of June, 1965, and this is when they redo the vocal for Yesterday and they record the uh, strings for... Uh, yesterday as well. Ringo does Act Naturally, your favourite Ringo song. Yes, well, I don't know. <laughs> it has competition on Rubber Soul. This song they recorded from scratch in 90 minutes. The second took even longer. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but, but then they do four takes of what is essentially the rhythm track for Wait and Take Four is the Best. And, and, and this is a fully realised um, uh, backing track. And then there are, there are vocals done just single tracked 
buckles and and that was it and they actually make mono mixes um the next day of weight so at that stage it was presumably slated for the help album no reason why it shouldn't be on the help album but then when they do the stereo mixes they exclude weight i mean i think the assumption here is that george martin didn't feel it was good enough to include on the album uh so what they did was they just tenth of may they they knocked off cop versions of dizzy miss lizzie and we did say this back in, in the help episode that you know help would be a totally different beast if it had been all original material you know as a hard day's night i think yeah. the, the covers kind of let it down a little bit um, but what we'll see with you know this album and also with, with Rubber Soul is that George Martin is still making some key decisions in terms of the Beatles aren't necessarily getting involved in mixing yet no. and they're not getting involved in track listing or any of those kind of things. Whereas that's still an executive decision that's being made by George Martin. So he decides that weight would be better off with a you know a rock and roll cover. And I guess that had been the practice in albums at the time, which is, you know, something that's popular in a live set, something, you know, something new, something forgotten, you know, a bit of a cover. So uh, that, that that's forgivable. But I think in retrospect, it wasn't the right decision. No. And, uh, you know, if they'd ended help with weight and then yesterday. Yeah. Mm. But you can't add again, the rule is you can't end an album on a downbeat song. Uh, what the Beatles can't, or, or uh, well, I think uh, generally can't generally. Well, certainly the Beatles. You yeah. know, they 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 don't end albums on downbeat songs at this point. Um, I'm I'm just running through them in my head. I suppose not. No. Um, if I wanted to hear this um, June seventeenth, nineteen sixty five version of Wait, uh, where could I hear it? Well, what you do is you just play the left channel on the original stereo mix, and that's, and that's it. it. Pretty much. And so everything on. Everything on the right channel is added because... Uh, That's more or less the way it works down, yeah. So Wait, actually, uh, what we'll see is it kind of bookends the Rubber Soul session. So it, it's recorded back in June 65 for help. It's put on the shelf. And when they're running out of time towards the end, as we'll see later on, it gets dusted down. So it's pretty much more or less almost the first and last thing recorded for the album. But at this stage, they've no idea that it's going to end up on an album called Rubber Soul that comes out in December 1965. It's just one of the odd collection of, yeah, there's an odd collection of Beatles songs and remakes that stay on the shelf in 1965. They're starting to, uh, you know, tease out some of that stuff. Um, So before the Rubber Soul sessions start in earnest, which, as we said, is Tuesday, October the 12th, they go off on tour in summer 65. They play... You know, big dates in the US and Shea Stadium and all the rest. And live, they're still doing a very traditional type of set list. They, they are. If you look at the set list, and the, this is the tour on which the uh, part of the Hollywood Bowl album from 1977, some of the tracks turn up. But the, So the set list is Twist and Shout, She's a Woman, I Feel Fine, Dizzy Miss Lizzie, Ticket to Ride, Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, Can't Buy Me Love, Babies in Black, Terrible Song, I Want to Be Your Man, Hard Day's <laughs> Night, Help and I'm Down. So, you know, that th- th- those are a lot of pretty old songs um, and really not reflective of what is about to come. Yes, and, and it's funny, we say old songs, but they're only a year or two old. Like most bands would be touring their stuff for a year or two. But in the Beatles universe, it is certainly um, it is certainly kind of old. And the other thing to remember is that the Help album itself, you know, comes out on the 6th of August, 1965. There's only about 16 weeks or so that separates yeah. Help coming out and being in the stores and Rubber Soul. And, you know, it goes back to Epstein's deal that, you know, the Beatles should have two albums and four singles out 
per year. And rubber sole is kind of the last time rubber sole and we can work it out day trippers the last time that they managed to more or less meet that quota. Um, but yeah, it's such a, it's like a, a four month gap between the two albums. Only, only we have a higher work rate. <laughs> uh, do we though? Uh, I don't know. Um, so yeah, so they're, they're coming off the back of that US tour. They've got about September to try and get their material together. And yeah. John and Paul are having writing sessions, as we'll see, mainly out in John's house. It seems to be more Paul goes out to John and wakes him up and tells him to finish a song. Then John is knocking on Paul's door in London. You'd think John had come to London. I don't know. Just maybe, maybe. John was hanging out with the family. I don't know. Well, um, it, it, yeah, and the thing is, they are still writing together, um, not in the same way yeah. as that eyeball to eyeball. But you, you know, Paul is sending John reel to reel tapes of little demos and things like that, and um, uh, you know, John is then working on lyrics or middle eights, or Paul rather on the middle eights for John songs. So they, they're, they're still collaborating, but not in the same way. It's that that the songwriting process is altering. Yes. Um, but yeah, there's still an awful lot of John and Paul together on this. Um, and just before the Beatles uh, go into the studio to start Rubber Soul proper, uh, John Lennon turns 25 years of age on the 9th of October, 1965. Um, do you have any idea where uh, they celebrated John Lennon's 25th birthday? I do not know where this was celebrated. They, <laughs> they had a they were at a big party in Lionel Bart's house. Um, Lovely. And, uh, he, they had a separate celebration afterwards themselves, but they were in Lionel Bart's house because um, there was a, a Lionel Bart musical opening called Twang, which was one of his musicals that's not particularly well loved or remembered. But Lionel Bart was uh, pretty much, as I understand it, his house was a party house in the 60s. Much like your own house. No, <laughs> this isn't where uh, this isn't where Judy Garland turned up. Was this a different party where she suddenly turns up? Well, that was at Epstein's house. Oh, that was Epstein's house. But yeah, you yeah. can see the, this is obviously Epstein's influence. You know, Lionel Bart. It's it's an odd insight into the kind of crazy worlds they were moving between. Yes, and the very artistic world that they were in. You know. So when we get to, but th th there is this deadline. So they are told. Hey, you know, you had an album out in August. One month has passed. You now need to get another album done before Christmas for the Christmas market. And they are not in the business of, oh, well, we're going to revolutionize the album as an art statement. They're basically in the business of how many songs can we get down as quickly as possible. And so the first Rubber Soul session proper is on Tuesday, October the 12th. And I've always, I'm always curious in what the first song recorded for the album is, because you can mm. see certainly in later albums, they kind of act as a, a template for what's about to happen. So Revolver's first song is Tomorrow Never Knows. Pepper's first song is Strawberry Fields. The White Album's first song is Revolution. Very much John steering the ship and giving an idea of what's about to happen. For the first session, uh, there's two songs recorded and they're kind of the, the yin and the yang of Lennon, which is Run For Your Life and Norwegian Wood, which are two, once again, Lennon leading the charge as to, you know, putting down the first step on the album, but two very different songs. Yeah, it's always it's always John songs that get uh, get looked at first, I think. Um, Run For Your Life is a song that a lot of people don't like. I'm one of them. <laughs> oh, here we go. Well, you and John Lennon, uh, you, you know, uh, don't like this okay. song. Uh, I think the song is great. And I'm surprised that you don't like the song because it seems to me that this is the template, the sound here is the template for the monkey's entire career. 
Um, yes, uh, I can see where you're coming from with that. I, I, I guess the reason why I, I am set against Run For Your Life is um, when I first encountered it, I think it's an odd album closer. I, I think, mm. you know, when I first listened to Rubber Soul, I guess I would have been 14 or so. And you're told, oh, this is the famous Rubber Soul and it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, you're, you're kind of going through it and, you know, it's got great songs and then it gets to this song at the end. And it's a bit like the, the Dizzy Miss Lizzy phenomenon. It's like, well, this f- appears very throwaway. And, you know, having had a very proto hippie experience throughout some of the other songs, we're now back to, I'd rather see a dead little girl. And I, I understand that that's a, you know, a, you know, it's an Elvis reference and it's a, you know, a bit of a blues trope and, you know, it's also, I'd rather be dead and all the rest, you know, I, I get that, but coming after what it is, I think it's a bit of a mood breaker and um, I don't really care for it, you know? But I like, I, I, what I like about it are just, I like the sound of it. I like the musical sound of it. I like all the guitars that are going yeah. around. You know, there's a lot of guitar overdubs there. But you see what I mean? It's a kind of like, like last train to Clarksville kind of. Uh, no, jang- I, I do. Jangly, jangly, jangly vibe. And people, you know, bang on about the misogynistic aspect of it. But it's, it's no more. I mean, is it worse than Under My Thumb? or Ballad in Plain D no, or I, uh, any any Bob Dylan or Stone song from the era, you know, Yesterday's Papers and things like that. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's not taken to be taken literally, I think. It's uh, somebody venting their frustration. And as you say, it's a, it's a kind of an old uh, blues trope. Yes. Yeah, no, I think, I think, look, if you're, if you're looking for misogyny, um, Definitely. It's 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 the stones you're looking at. I think it's it, it. I don't think it's something that fits the Beatles particularly well, you know, so as a as a as a one off song. Fair enough. Um, but it's 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 what's curious about the fact that it's these two songs run from your life and Nor- run for your life in Norwegian wood is that they're two sides of yeah. uh, Lennon. So it's almost like one is early Elvis Lennon and the, the other one is modern Dylan Lennon. Yeah. And uh if we're looking at Run For Your Life, this is, you know, the, the Elvis song we're talking about is Baby Let's Play House, which is, you know, has a line, I'd rather see a dead little girl than to be with another man. That's where it comes from. And again, it's the same as the whole come together vibe where he's basically taking a line from a song and going, nobody's going to notice. It's all absolutely fine. And we don't think he got sued for Run For Your Life at no, all. No, he, 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 he didn't get sued for Run, Run For Your Life, but he, he seems to think it is. I mean, he actually said in 1980, I wrote it around that line, a line from an old blues song uh, that Elvis Presley did. But it isn't an old blues song. It's, it's, it's a song uh, that was uh, written in 1955. So it's not a sort of, you know, trad arranged by... Um, it was written mm. by a guy called Arthur Gunter, and mm-hmm. it was Elvis's fourth single. It, it, it uh, was the first song that made the national chart um, for Elvis. But Arthur Gunter is a fascinating character. He has a great co- compilation of albums on uh, Excello, and um, mm-hmm. he got a $6,500 royalty check, uh, supposedly from Elvis. But the best thing... He continued to record for Excello until 1961. His band broke up, but you think this is going to be a sort of terrible story of, of you know, like other blues artists that they are ripped off and they sort of die in penury and all the rest of it. He kept going, but he retired in 1973 because he won the Michigan State Lottery. That's nice. There's a movie right there. 
<laughs> Unfortunately, he died about three years later. He was only 49 when he died after winning the lottery. So you can't have it all. Boy, those last three years, you know. <laughs> what a time he had. Um, Paul suggests that um, in many years from now that the, the song was uh, largely John's. You don't say yeah, Paul. He's, and, he's, um, uh, he's distancing himself from this one. But he does say things like, uh, Paul says, John was always on the run. He was married, whereas none of my songs would have said, catch you with another man. It was never a concern of mine because I had a girlfriend and I would go with other girls. It was a perfectly open relationship. So I wasn't as worried about that as John was. Bit of a macho song. Was it an open relationship, Paul? Did everyone know it was an open relationship? And here we have Jane Asher on the podcast who's going to come and tell us <laughs> if that was... I mean, that is such... That's news that, to her. It's, you know, John was always on the run. Uh, it was never a, catch you with another man was never a concern of mine because, you know, I was the cute one um, and I had an open relationship. There's a lot of revisionism there. Do you not think in sort of justification? Oh, I, I think so. You know, I'm surprised he even thinks about it at all. And um... John, John, John made a couple of comments in 1970. He said the song was always a favorite of George's. And then in 1980, mm. he said he said it was a favorite to George. And you think, well, what does I, that I, mean? It was a favourite of George's or it was written as a favour to George? And is that like a misprint or a mistranscription or something? But does he mean it was deliberately I think one of those is a... Yeah. I think one of those is a misunderstanding. Let's say a favourite of George's maybe. Favourite of Must George's. Must have liked playing it. Yeah, I think because there's a lot of guitars. There's there's sort of four overdubbed uh, uh, guitar tracks there. And that's I, that's why, you know, if you, I, I don't even object particularly to the lyric, but I do like... The guitar sound there and it's slightly ragged and i i quite like that as well yeah no i i i get that i'll, I'll go back and listen again with uh and i'll try and you know uh try and imagine i don't understand the lyrics um but it's uh yeah it, it is a good sound and it does pop up again all roads need back to get back let it be it does pop up on january the 21st 1969 when they start um singing a little bit of it they do what what i would say is i've heard a a bootleg recording of this. John at this point had taken to having a reel-to-reel tape recorder in the studio with him and mm. then he, he would tape the monitor mixes so when they were listening to it back he would tape that and there is a tape that he made uh, but of course what he did was he taped over the demo. So all the demos from oh. this era are tend to be on reel-to-reel tapes. There's lots of these reel-to-reel tapes have emerged where John has re-recorded stuff over the top of the demo so you just get like 10 seconds of the demo this like in and you think uh, ah john <laughs> well you know i think uh isn't that an important thing about an artist is that they're they're not too precious about some of that stuff that you have to know when to wipe and move on yeah well, yes well i've 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 erased all the old episodes of nothing is real very good uh, very good <laughs> all the rehearsal tapes uh yeah just very yes. quick very quickly the mono mix is slightly longer than mm-hmm. the stereo mix and the 1987 mix that George Martin did because he redid the stereo mix for Rubber Soul because he didn't like it uh, in 1987 yes. is shorter again. So there's three different versions circulating before we even get on to the remastered version. Yeah, when we do kind of talk a little bit about the mixing, as you say, yeah, there's a mono mix, a stereo mix, but the stereo mix uh, disappeared in the mid 80s when the CDs came out. George Martin did a very quick uh, stereo remix, which uh, some people argue about. The, the original stereo mix is available on the mono CD box set from 2009. That's right. If that's not too confusing a statement. It's very panned left and right. 
you know, it's just like a complete yes. separation. And that's why you can you can almost sort of just listen to instrumental versions of the songs if you turn down one side. There's a there's a very funny video on YouTube about what it's like to listen to the Beatles with one headphone and it's all just random noises. Um, the, uh, the the rhythm track for this, they only did uh, one take that was complete, which was take five. John on acoustic guitar and guide vocals, Paul on bass, George on electric rhythm guitar, Ringo on new Ludwig drums, uh, and then multiple uh, lead guitar overdubs from George and Ringo's tambourine and then all the vocals on top of that. So, you know, pretty solid bit of work. Um, but the other thing that gets recorded that day is Norwegian Wood, open brackets, this bird has flown, close brackets. And um, this is certain, as I kind of said, you know, there's a, there's a bit of, you know, John as Mr. Ben, the children's character, who I'm sure many listeners won't know what I'm talking about, but he tries on a different costume. So he's tried on his Elvis costume. I see what and you're now doing. He's putting on his, yes, he, now he's putting on his Bob Dylan costume. And maybe it's my own snobbery that I prefer the Dylan costume to the Elvis costume. Um, but uh, if we're kind of looking for something along the lines of Tomorrow Never Knows or Revolution to say, what's the current style or mindset for mm. this record? Norwegian Wood delivers that. Yes, I think so. It's, it's uh, I suppose, the quintessential Rubber Soul track. Mm. Um, I always think of a distinction between Rubber Soul and Revolver. You know, George, famously in anthology, couldn't remember which came first or where one started and one began. Yes. <laughs> but they sound completely different. And I think Rubber Soul has a sort of organic, sort of a woody sound, as uh, Monty Python yes. would say. Yes, it's not tinny. Run for your life is tinny. <laughs> Run for your life is tinny. <laughs> well, and uh, Revolver is a very tinny, metallic sound. Uh, yes. Was the, the overriding feel is is sort of even down to the cover i think is that kind of earthy woody organic sound and i think uh, um norwegian wood is is the quintessential song if you could only pick one song off rubber soul to take to the desert island this is the one i'd take well i th yeah and i think if i could pick one song that's about george martin's broken foot i think it'd be this one yes yes it's uh mm. it, it's quite the inspiration do you want to explain <laughs> that <laughs> before well, people turn well, off well apparently they were on holidays. Um, uh, Lennon was, uh, the Lennons were on holidays with the Martins um, uh, at the end of January 65. And um, George Martin had a broken foot. They were in the Swiss Alps skiing and there was obviously some kind of accident. And so he would play a, a little ditty to George Martin, who was sitting around with his, his broken foot and uh, had to do with nursing his injured foot, his injured toe. And that, that's the song that evolved into Norwegian Wood. It, it seems very strange to me that the Lennons went on holiday with the Martins. You think they would be a very different couple, you know? But there, yeah, there, there is, you know, pre-India. India seems to put an end to them traveling in any sorts of groups anymore. Yeah. But they, you know, who else do they travel with? You know, it's, it's kind of... No, but what I mean is I could see, I could see Paul and Jane going on holiday with, with George Martin and his wife. Yeah. Uh, but John who by this stage is, you know, dropping acid and uh, recording weird stuff in the roof space of his house in his little music room. It just seems odd. But he's still trying to be normal, John. He's still trying to be Mr. Suburban Husband type person. He hasn't totally reneged on that yet. I suppose so. But John, John said uh, he didn't. He says he wrote this at Kenwood. Um, so he was, yes. saying, he was saying that in 1970 and in 1972, he said, Paul helped me on the lyric. Um, and this is, this is something that we uh, notice across the whole of Robber Soul is 
how they write together and, and one of them provide, you know, provides the start and the other comes in and finishes it off. So Paul, in many years from now, says, uh, I came in and he had the first stanza, which was brilliant. I once had a girl, or should I say she once had me. That was all he had, no title, no nothing. And I said, ah, right, okay. And it sort of wrote itself. Once you've got a great idea, they do tend to write themselves, providing you know how to write songs. That's an important um, proviso. Uh, so I picked it up at the second verse. So... Paul is sort of saying he had quite quite the input there. I I do like that sentiment, providing you know how to write songs. And he, he, he has said versions of that thing, that kind of thing over the years. But he it, I know it's an understatement to say, well, he does know how to write songs. Yeah. But he he is he's he's a guy who is quite adept at being able to um take an idea and imagine where it goes or think about where it goes or to think around corners. Um, and so, you know, many writers say that the fun is actually in the rewriting. So yeah. for Paul, who's a, who's a great songwriter to actually, you know, come in and to be given the, the seed of an idea instead of having to come up with the idea himself. Well, that's just manna from heaven. As, as long as you've got a collaborator who you think is good enough. And he obviously did with, with, with Lennon. So he, he you know, th- that's perfect for him. But I, I, yeah, I do like that notion, providing you know how to write songs, that he's pretty confident at this point that he knows how to write a song. He's written a couple before. <laughs> well, he, well, he sees it, but he, but he does see it as a process, you know, and I think John might still see it as a, you know, there's, there's, there's this notion of, you know, and again, uh, you know, it, it, it is shown in the Get Back film that, you know, sometimes you have to mine things. Not everything is an immediate um, inspiration. They don't all arrive fully formed. And Paul is not adverse to the, the mining or the, the mathematics that goes into figuring out how to write a song, whereas maybe John is a bit more, um, you know, he's very much into the, the, the kernel of the inspiration of the song. I think that's right. And I think increasingly uh, over the next kind of six, seven years, Lennon just becomes about, well, you just grab the first idea and the first idea is the best idea. Um, you know, Paul's yeah. not, not averse to that. I, I think Paul, maybe later in his career, gets to that point where he doesn't think about rewriting lyrics or he just goes with the first draft and, you know, I'm thinking yeah. puppy dogs, tales and things like that. You know, he whereas if you put more more effort into it but uh, th- this this song john has always been very specific that this was him writing about an affair that he was having yes um but in such a way that uh he didn't want to let his wife know that he was having an affair so he actually says i was sort of writing from my experiences girls flats things like that and then he's more specific um in 1980 where he said it was about an affair i was having i was very careful and paranoid because i didn't want my wife sin to know that there really was something going on outside the household i'd always had some kind of affairs going so i was trying to be sophisticated um, but in such a smokescreen way that you couldn't tell i can't remember any specific woman it had to do with i hate to break it to john but i bet cynthia knew i would say although she did <laughs> she, she 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 does profess to have been shocked when he at one point really yeah later on kind of he he sort of lists all of the uh affairs that he's had but um so the question is who is this song actually about is it about somebody specific he says he can't remember uh pete shotton mm. uh says it was a song about john's affair with a quote sophisticated female journalist which could be maybe the late maureen cleave maybe but philip norman 
who is usually wrong about everything, uh, <laughs> says the song is actually about John's affair with Sonny Freeman, the wife of Robert Freeman, the photographer. Um, and uh, apparently she used to describe herself as Norwegian and their apartment was decorated with wood panelling. It's all about the wood panelling. Well, John doesn't know, or said in 1980, he didn't know exactly what Norwegian wood came from. Paul says that... Uh, you know, he said Norwegian wood was really cheap pine, which people were decorating with at the time. But it's not a good title, cheap pine. So it's a little parody on the kind of girls who do their flat where there'd be a lot of Norwegian wood. It was completely imaginary from my point of view. But in John's head, it was based on an affair that he had. Um, this wasn't the decor of someone's house. We made that up. And um, it's also, Paul also says in, in many years from now, it's like one of their joke songs, which yes. it's not a great joke. But where's the joke in it? Well, do you don't think it's funny? I think it's a, it's a funny song. It's, you know, he, 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 you know, picks up this girl, goes back to her flat, thinks he's onto a sure thing. And then she said, sorry, I have to work in the morning. So then he has to sleep in the bath, which is kind of quite funny. That's a kind of, yeah. you know, sitcom trope. Um, and then she goes off to work. And then uh, I lit a fire. Does he burn the house down? Does he burn the flat down? So that's, you know, it's like a little sitcom well, that- in itself. Well, that's what Paul said. I had the idea to set the place on fire. So I take some sort of credit. Um, But it never really dawned on me that he was setting the apartment on fire until I read Paul say that. I just thought, oh, he he lit a fire. You know, he just he's on his own and he's lighting a fire to stay warm. I didn't realize that the hilarious joke was that I I lit a fire um, because he was turned down. He became an arsonist. Yeah. Isn't it good? Norwegian word. Uh, You know that. Yeah. He burns the flat down. (laughs) <laughs> the the song is very much the opposite of Run For Your Life. It's funny how in Run For Your Life, it's like, I'd rather see you dead than to be with another man. And yep. then the other song is, I hope my wife doesn't find out I'm having an affair. Oh my God, I'm going to be in so much trouble. <laughs> it doesn't really make much sense. As you say, this is the uh, the two sides of, of John Lennon. And the other <laughs> the other thing is, it's, it's a sort of waltz. Yeah, it's an odd time t- time signature. John, you will recall uh, in Get Back, is very scathing about uh, I Me Mine, saying this band doesn't play waltzes. You think, well, you know, you kind of do, John. But um, yeah, there you go. the song is also noticeable because George takes a, a sitar break. But before we talk about that, why don't we take our own break and we'll be right back after these messages. End of part one. Intermission. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So when we think of Norwegian wood, we think of sitars. Um, the version that they record this first night of recording is done uh, in, a, in a single take. And uh, George breaks out his sitar. This is the, the dawning of George as a sitarist. 
it, it, this is the take that will turn up on Anthology 2 in a in a sort of Jeff yes. Emmerich mix. And I think I'm right in saying that the lyric is, is slightly switched. Uh, drinking my wine, biding my time becomes biding my time drinking her wine. You know, it, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of switched. But otherwise, the song is completely there. Um, John doesn't like this arrangement at all. And, you know, if you listen to Anthology 2, it is a bit clunky. And uh, yes. George's, the sitar part is odd it's just very literal you know it's just kind of following the melody and it's uh, it's not really adding anything it's it sort of detracts i would much rather hear this version with the sitar mixed out i think as it's just a, a an acoustic dylan run through i think it might work that way i don't think the sitar works at all on version one yeah uh, and in a sort of a you know, a, 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 some kind of prediction of how the Beatles are going to work in the future. What actually happens, as you say, is that this version of Norwegian Wood gets put on the shelf. And if we skip ahead briefly to October the 21st, 65, they decide to do another version of Norwegian Wood from scratch. So some of the versions are still the same. Um, either some of the, the elements are still the same, the acoustic guitar, the sitar, but it's basically a question of trying to, to nail the mood. So it's a four and a half hour session on October the 21st from 2.30 to, to towards seven in the evening. And the song uh, has changed its title because it had essentially been This Bird Has Flown, but now it, it gets tipped over uh, officially into Norwegian Wood. And Take Four is kind of the keeper, as John says, I showed you on the tape. And uh, so they have a, a basic rhythm track of two acoustic guitars, bass guitar, bass drum beats and vocals. And then they do overdubs and then in comes George with a much more, much more coherent sitar part. Yeah, I mean, you get the sense he's he's worked out what he's doing and and it's uh it's an ingredient in the song rather than being played all the way through and it's more a more sort of complementary feel to it well i think in the first version he's playing it like a guitarist he's trying to find a melody line yeah. and he's picking out the notes bang 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 whereas in the second version he's introducing the drone of the sitar which is obviously the whole point of a sitar which is you know that kind of the the ambience of the instrument as opposed to just the the, the melodic part and famously obviously george first encounters a guitar just a few months earlier on the set of Help in the Indian restaurant scene. From such little acorns do big things grow. Yes, it's slightly problematic in the 21st century Indian restaurant <laughs> scene. But There's a um, couple of problematic issues. We're not cancelling Help. We're but, not cancelling Help, not, but uh, uh, no, no. Um, no, no. I watched it recently. It's, it's quite funny. You know, it's, it's funny. It's very it's, much it's of its of time. It's a bit of a lark. The colours yeah. are of its time. The themes are of, of its time but you know um but yeah he 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 said um you know he it was sort of uh fairly spontaneous he picked it up he was sort of fooling around with it um ringo describes this as such a mind blower we had this strange instrument on the record we were all open to anything when george introduced the sitar you could walk in with an elephant as long as it was going to make a musical note i'd like to see that that's that's more brian wilson i think he's thinking of uh, anything it, was... it, it didn't take much to blow minds in 1965 it's a no. sitar you know anything anything was viable yeah jo john is kind of saying uh, in 1980, it's the first pop song that ever had a sitar on it. I, I asked George to play this guitar lick on the sitar. He wasn't sure whether he could play it yet because he hadn't done much on the sitar, but he was willing to have a go, as is his wont. And he learned the bit. And you think, so George, John is taking credit for the idea, but also he's very, you know, it's like Ticket to Ride is the first heavy metal song. This is the first song with uh, um, 
uh, a sitar on it. I Feel Fine is the first record with feedback. John's very much about claiming the firsts uh, here. Well, let's not forget that the US Help soundtrack has a sitar on it, which we stated before. And also, um, you know, a single that came out uh, during the summer of 65 is The Kinks See My Friends, which was recorded in May 65 and came out in July 65. And although it doesn't have a sitar on it, it does have a kind of a tambora style drone running through it. So it's certainly something that was in the pop music ether at the time. Yes, yes. And uh, the engineer, Norman Smith, Norman Hurricane Smith, uh, he mm. comment, he comments that this is extremely difficult to record because it's lots of peaks and a very complex waveform. And, uh, you know, he, he seems to have had quite a, a difficult uh, time recording that. And uh, the, the thing that really shocked me is he says uh, he didn't like Rubber Soul. I thought he was the engineer right. on Rubber Soul and he, much like yourself, he doesn't like it. <laughs> well, he's, he said it wasn't really my bag, but then, you know, he's a fascinating guy, Norman, normal Hurricane Smith, because he goes off to work with Pink Floyd um, and the, the Pretty Things on SF Sorrow. And then he becomes Hurricane Smith, the artist, and he has two kind of free kits, Don't Let It Die in the UK in 1971 and a number one in the US in 1972, oh babe, what would you say? And he appears on the Tonight Show, and you know, it must have been wild for Lennon, you know, in New York, kind of watching Norman Hurricane Smith appear on TV shows because he would have been at that stage, um, late forties. I was going to say he'd been 103 at that point. <laughs> um, turning on, turning, turning up on US TV and being number one of the pop charts. It's a, it's a nice twist, I guess. Yeah, and apparently John also used to call him uh, Two Decibel Smith because he kept telling them to turn things <laughs> down. So, uh... um, so they managed to get Norwegian Wood done in this second version, and there's you know a couple of uh, different. There's there's a there's a mono stereo mix difference, isn't there? There is. There's a kind of kind of weird, and this this is just increasingly the case. I mean, you could spend the rest of your life chasing down these different. Uh, the, these different yeah. mixes but on the mono mix they don't fade down the sitar track when he's not playing so you can actually hear george coughing um yeah and then what seems to possibly be john saying oh sounds good uh, so th they just they just don't pay attention to this uh the stereo mix uh is different um but you can still hear uh sort of voices in the background so if you listen with headphones you can kind of hear these uh these versions and then of course it turns up again uh in at twickenham uh the 7th and the 9th yes. of january yes everything, everything turns I, up I in twickenham I, I think from now on we just we, we say and does it turn up uh, during the get back sessions yes or no and it's a yes it turns up on january the 7th and the 9th um during the rehearsals there um when we get to so the the first full day proper is Tuesday October the twelfth. Second full day proper is Wednesday October the thirteenth. Session number two, Paul's debut song, and Paul brings in "Drive My Car," um, which is, you know, uh, that's that's uh, that's a pretty solid Beatles song. It's the song that opens the album. It's a song that pretty much has been in an awful lot of his live sets to this date, and it's another one of these songs that was written by John and Paul together. But you don't like this song much. No, it's not that I don't you like it. Said, no, 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 no. You I... definitely told me off air that you didn't like this song. <laughs> no, it's not that I don't like it. I, 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 you don't I, love I it. You don't some... love it. I, I don't. I don't totally love it. I think. Uh, I, I think that there's a couple of moments on Rubber Soul where 
I, I think there's a little bit of detachment going on, you know, and drive my car is a little bit kind of clever, clever in a way, maybe like it grooves and it sounds fantastic. And the cowbell is amazing and all that kind of stuff. And again, it's all relative in the Beatles universe because all of it's fantastic. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying if I had to choose, where would, where would it all go? You know, fair enough. Nicely done. If uh, what, what I would, <laughs> what, what, what I would say is I would give this song, if you want to know the difference between Ringo and other drummers, this is the song to listen to. There's a version of this song on Paul is Live, which is yeah. terrible. And it's all <laughs> I think, all I think about the drumming. And it's yeah. just, you know, that kind of indefinable feel. So if you play the two, the two things, all the elements are there in each song, um, but it's just really flat and lifeless. And it might be to do with the live sound recording, but I think it's to do with the, with, with, with the drumming and, and the feel. But uh, oh, listen, you can't underestimate what Ringo, Ringo bought to everything. Um, uh, but it, it was another one of these ones that kind of came in the in the Kenwood sessions uh, sometime in the weeks before Rubber Soul, where, you know, again, maybe a lot of people listening here will know the story that Paul had this song called Diamond Rings that, uh, you know, he had, I can give you diamond rings, do, 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 I can give you anything. And <laughs> Paul says, you know, he played this to John and John said, oh, he didn't like the lyrics. And we had a deep, sad moment. Oh, they were sad that they the song together. sucked. <laughs> um, so they went off, have a cup of tea and a ciggy, and then they just have this idea, drive my car. And it, it comes back into the thing we said a minute ago. Paul, who knows how to pull the thread and write a song, says, well, if that's the idea, where does it go? So, you know, you know, you drive a car, who's driving the car, who's a chauffeur, does he have the chauffeur, does he have the money? And, and he, he, you know, he, he suddenly turns into another one of these hilarious rubber soul joke songs. It is a joke song. It is a joke song. He, said, he says, uh, it was wonderful because this nice tongue-in-cheek idea came and suddenly there was a girl, the heroine of the story, and the story had developed and had a little sting in the tail like Norwegian Wood had, which was actually, I haven't got yeah. a car, but when I do get one, you'll be a terrific chauffeur. So to me, it was LA chicks. I don't, I'm not getting that. And also it meant you can be my lover. <laughs> Drive my car is an old blues euphemism for sex. So in the end, all is revealed. Black humor crept in and saved the day. I think it's very much a like a, a, a British kind of car song because you have American rock and roll car songs where at the time, oh, you get a car, you get a car, everybody gets a car. Hands up who's 16 and wants a car. Everyone gets one. Whereas in the UK, that was not the situation no. at all. So uh, I, I think it's, you know, if, if you're looking at it as a flip to, you know, your Chuck Berries or your, your Beach Boys type car songs, this is a Beatles British car song where it's like, well, actually, we don't have a car. Maybe someday we'll have a car. Who knows? Who knows? Who needs a car anyway? I'm off to stand in the rain. <laughs> but the, 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 the other thing is that, you know, American car songs are about hot rods and, uh, you know, motivating over the hill and, and with Chuck Berry and yeah. state, state troopers and Jersey turnpikes. Here, the big, <laughs> the big ambition is to have a car that somebody else will drive for you. You know, that's, you yes. know, it's not that, it's not that the, 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 the protagonist here wants to drive a car. It's that they want to be driven. You know, that's the, that's yes. the thing. But but yes, as you say, no doubt that baby, you can drive my car is also a euphemism for the thing that most songs are a euphemism for as well. Um, when they record it, it was the first Beatles session to go past midnight. Again, lots of things happen on Rubber mm. Soul that become the norm, remaking songs, working way into the night. Um, and they managed to get one uh, complete take after four tracks, which was, uh, you know, Paul on bass, George on 
Fender Strat, Ringo on drums, and maybe John on tambourine. We think John mightn't have played any instrument on mm. this at all, potentially. Um, and then they they do the the kind of the the layering on of uh, you know all the vocals, Lennon's double track lines, maybe I love you. And uh, this the guitar solo though is Paul. Yes, yes, that's right. Why is that then? Jason? And it's what? Why is that? Yes, because he's so good. <laughs> that must be. That must be uh, it. It, it it certainly has that uh, you know once once you know what you're looking for he has a very attacking guitar style so you know you can kind of hear it in Drive My Car you hear it in Taxman which is also a Paul solo you hear it in Good Morning Good Morning which as far as I know is another Paul solo um, so it's very um, it just jumps out at you you know it's not very measured or melodic like like uh, George would be very controlling of Paul is what you're trying to say. Well, I'm just saying. He has a fixed idea, and we'll we, we hear George talk about this later on in another context, but he's, you know, Paul, George, <laughs> Paul comes in with absolutely everything. We've talked about this before, where he can hear every aspect of the song as, yes, a, rec- yes. as a record. He can hear the record, not the song. He can actually hear the record. So he comes in and he says, you do this, and you do this, and I'll do that, and then I'll do that, and you do that, and then I'll do this. And, it, you know, so he has a very set arrangement Um here and the solo he seems to have done it at least once maybe twice um because you can yeah. hear that you could it's a slightly odd if you again if you put the headphones on you can kind of hear maybe a bleed through from an earlier r- run through on the on on the solo that sounds slightly odd mm. yeah he's uh he's I, I guess you know if we're for again looking for the parallels um, George decided, you know, I'll play if you want or I won't play if you don't want me to, whatever whatever pleases you. So it pleased Paul to do the solo on Drive My Car. Um, but once this is the first session that goes past midnight, then they're done. That's in the can. It doesn't get revisited, rewritten. No. Pretty swift, straightforward uh, song and recording. So that's uh, session two of Revolver done. We then get on to uh, session three, which is Saturday the 16th, of October, and there's a uh, there's 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 two songs that kind of get brought up here, which is one is um, Day Tripper, which is actually going to be the next single, and we get the first appearance of George's "If I Needed Someone," yeah. uh, which is a brief rehearsal. Now, Day Tripper gets hived off to be the next single, and it's not earmarked at all at any point for Rubber Soul, so it's no. not like where we're going to record a bunch of songs and see which one works as a single time is of the essence here so they know that day tripper is um uh, is the single and it's again it seems odd to us in the 21st century that they are not only trying to deliver a 14 track album for you know a little over eight weeks time but they're also trying to deliver a number one two-sided single the first double a side single in history so good it's got two a sides that's 16 original tracks it's 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 quite crazy it makes no sense uh you, you know you think we're we're under pressure to deliver this album so what what's the best thing to do tell you what we'll come in on a saturday and record a separate single uh, you, you know even at this point they're not they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're 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 not prepared to kind of hive off a couple of tracks from the album or put out as a single something you know drive my car i'm sure would have been a good hit single yeah, could have been. It it just seems very odd that 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 they they do that. Uh, of course, we talked about the double A side on our double A side uh, episode. We did indeed. 
So, yeah, so they spend most, it's a nine and a half hour recording session. They spend eight and a half hours getting Day Tripper down. Uh, and then they do an hour on George's debut of If I Needed Someone. And it's quite egalitarian when you look at it. We, we've had the John Day, we've had the Paul Day, and now we're going to, you know, get the single out of the way. And now it's George's turn. And If I Needed Someone, I, I think in terms of George bringing stuff to the studio, and we've touched upon this earlier in the episode, I think this is a great song. This is fantastic. It is. I think it's a little bit too long, but uh, I think it it's gets a little repetitive. But yeah, but you say it's very egalitarian, but they just knocked off a single take backing track in an hour. Well, they did. But then the, the next recording session, session four, is on Monday, October the 18th. And here's where they give much more time to uh, If I Needed Someone. So that's when, you know, they give it a bit more uh, a bit more attention so they do well when i say a bit more attention it's another three hours everything's done in about three or four hours on this album but uh this is if if, if there's any song in the beatles repertoire that betrays the influence of the birds this is this is the one um yeah and i think i mentioned at the beginning they they actually had attended a recording session by the birds um so this is when yeah. they had a few days off in la which was august 23rd to 27th during the 65 american tour um and at this point is it's worth remembering that derek taylor was the publicity agent for the birds so um i'm guessing derek's hand was involved in selling that up and they they, they become quite sort of friendly with the birds and david crosby in particular and george seemed to have hit it off. Um, if you remember, David Crosby turns up at the Pepper Sessions and is the first human being <laughs> uh, to hear A Day in the Life. But he has confirmed again recently on Twitter he did not sing on that or any other track. But he and George were particularly friendly and Crosby writes a song for George at one point later in the career. And um, But George actually sends an acetate when this is done, sends it uh, 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 to Roger McGuinn. <laughs> It is freaky how fast some of this stuff happens. So mm. the Birds' first single, I think, only comes out in about March of 65. Yeah. Um, Mr. Chavarine Man, which goes to number one. And, you know, it's only six weeks before recording If I Needed Someone that they are hanging out in L.A. with the Birds, that they are absorbing this uh, and how quickly they make decisions. Yes, this band is worthy of our attention, our respect, and and off they go, you know, recording this song. Is is that meeting in August '65? Is that the one where John and George do LSD? Yes, uh, because okay. because they 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 David Crosby comes out to their house. They're staying in uh, Benedict Canyon Road, and uh, Crosby comes out, and I think they all they all drop acid at that point, as you do. That that'd be that'd be a that'd be a party and a half. So, um... but yeah, George, George is very George is very open even from the beginning. I mean, he specifically t he tells the NME this is based on the twelve string figure from Bells of Rimini by the Birds. And if you listen to those two songs side by side, someone cleverer than me could do a a nice mashup of those two songs. Well, maybe somebody out there can do it. Um, it is the only George song that uh, the Beatles put into their live set. Yeah, go figure. Yeah, I know. I have um, to say, I have, other, to say, I have other, to say, those yeah. six, those sixty-six live versions are terrible. <laughs> well, specifically the Tokyo, specifically the Tokyo version. It's it's one of those songs that just they're just so tired. I think if if George was to pick a terrible version, he would pick the Hollies version. It's not that bad. I don't think it's that bad. I, I was quite surprised to see this uh, quote. So you know, the, the 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 Hollies actually put it out as a single, and I guess it must have been. You know, it becomes a top 20 hit single, um, you know, at the end of 1965. It actually comes out as a single on the same day as Rubber Soul, December the 3rd, uh, and reached the top 20. So it must have been good for George's uh, 
well, he might he might claim he didn't have an ego, but it might have been good for his spirit that he had written a top 20 single to see the song up the charts. But he, he was very disparaging. And it. good, good for his bank balance as well, I imagine. But yeah, he's he's yes, you could you can hear him say this. He says, I didn't write it for the Hollies. They've done it as their new single, but their version is not my kind of music. And he says, I think it's rubbish the way they've done it. <laughs> yeah, you can. They've spoiled yeah. it. They're all right musically, but the way they do their records, they sound just like session men who got together in a studio without ever seeing each other before. For. Technically, they're good, but that's all. And uh, you think, yeah, he's, yeah. he's, 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 uh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's pinpointing that thing that I was saying about drive my car. It's, it's about the feel, and it's about there's just an intangible quality to the, the to the Beatles uh, version. Yes, I have to say the Hollies version is better than the version on Live in Japan. Um, because it's yeah. just Eric Clapton just doing an Eric Clapton solo and it's kind of weird. It Yeah, and it is a song that he, yeah, it, well, live in, live in Japan is just generally weird. Um, George did sing the song um, and at his National Law Party last UK gig in 1992. Tom Petty sang it at the concert for George. Um, so it's a song that kind of hangs around and is basically, I think, George's first proper signature song. I think so. And it's a good it's a good verse by Tom Petty. Tom Petty does a good work. You can see yeah. that. I mean, Tom Petty is just his entire career is lifted from the birds himself. So, well, you know, it's an intersection of the birds and George Harrison. So it's perfect yeah. for, for Tom Petty. And uh, of course, don't forget the Hollies. Graham Nash goes off to meet David Crosby. It's all connected. It's all it's all it's all interlinked. Um, but once we get past uh, If I Needed Someone, we get onto one of the key tracks of Rubber Soul, which is In My Life. And again, another song where John and Paul are together writing, putting it together. And it's a bit of a disagreement about who did what. Yes. I mean, uh, you know, they argue these things back and forth. But I think there are, there are really only two Lennon-McCartney songs in the entire canon where there is a fundamental disagreement, really a major disagreement mm. between the two of them. One is Eleanor Rigby and the other one is this one. Paul, I have to say, has been pretty consistent uh, in his version. John had always described Paul's involvement as being fairly minimal and he actually uh, recounts the origins of the song back to an interview that he had done in March 1964 where this journalist Kenneth Alsop was sort of saying you know you've written this book uh, it's kind of slightly off the wall uh, lyrics you, those that sort of wordplay that sort of personal aspect of your writing doesn't turn up in the song why not and um, he was thinking about that and why he said why don't you put something of your childhood into the songs so he Lennon said I wrote the lyrics first and then sang it uh, that was usually the case of things like In My Life and Across the Universe, some of the ones that stand out a bit. I wrote it in Kenwood upstairs. It started out as a bus journey from my house at Menlo Avenue into town, mentioning every place I could remember. I wrote it all down and it was ridiculous. It was the most boring sort of what I did on my holidays bus trip song and it wasn't working at all. But then I just laid back and these lyrics started coming to me about the places I remember. Uh, it came to me, letting go is the whole game. And that was Lennon speaking in 1980. But that is completely the opposite uh, from Paul's take. So Yes. Well, Paul, well, what, what, the, the, it, the, we do actually have the original draft poem because um, Elliot Mintz, who worked with Yoko um, on, on John's personal possessions, found it in a, in a book. Um, shall I read the original poem? Please do. <clears throat> cough, cough, cough. There are places I'll remember all my life, though some have changed, some forever, but not for better. Some have gone and some remain. 
that's familiar. Penny Lane is one I'm missing. Up church and to the clock tower. In the circle of the abbey, I have seen some happy hours. Past the tram sheds with no trams. On the number five bus into town. Past the Dutch and St. Columbus. To the Docker's umbrella that they pulled down. All these places have their memories. Some are dead and some are living. So it's, it's a, a bit sixth form in parts. I was going to so say it's, it's exactly, it, it, it's a bit sixth formish. It it needs more trams. There's not enough trams mentioned or buses, not, or buses or any sorts of more vehicles. Yeah, and, some uh, vehicles in my vehicle. In my vehicle. <laughs> Paul Paul talked about this in 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 November of 1965 for the NME. He said the song was a, a, about a number of the places in Liverpool where we were born. Places like Penny Lane, the Dockers Umbrella, uh, have a nice sound. But when we strung them together in a composition, they sounded contrived. So we gave up. So you can you put, mm. do we do we were they just kind of talking. Do we put a lot of emphasis on the use of the word we there or not? But um, Or is it a Royal Beatles we? Yeah. I think it's a Royal Beatles we. So, so supposedly Paul says that John premiered this uh, poem, and this is the point at which the discrepancies start. Um, John said, there's a period when I thought, I don't really write melodies. Paul writes those. I write straight shouting rock and roll. But of course, when I think of some of my own songs in my life, I was writing melody with the best of them. Um, John did mm. say that Paul helped with the middle eight, uh, but he says the lyrics were already written before Paul had even heard it, and his contribution melodically was the harmony and the middle eight itself. It was my first real major piece of work up until then, it had been all glib and throwaway. But this is completely different from well, what Paul yeah, sets what Paul out. says. Yeah, he says, uh, my memories of writing in my life, I arrived at John's house for a writing session and he had the very nice opening stanzas for the songs. But as I recall, he didn't have a tune to it. And my recollection is, I think, at variance with John's. So he's acknowledging that he doesn't agree with John. I said, well, if you haven't a tune, just let me go and work at it. And I went down to the half landing where John had a mellotron and put together a tune based in my mind on Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, songs like You've Really Got a Hold of Me and Tears of a Clown. So I recall writing the whole melody and actually, it does sound very like me. It's interesting that Paul can recognize uh, his own melodies. If you analyze it, uh, I was obviously working to lyrics. The melody structure is very me. So my recollection is saying to John, let's go have a cup of tea or something. Let, let me be with this for 10 minutes and I'll, and I'll do it. Um, but as usual for these coding things, he often just had the first verse, which was always enough. So this is another version of the story where it's interesting. John says, oh, I wrote this poem and then I just went off and lied down and tried to get inspiration to come to me. And Paul is saying his Paul version of writing a song. Oh, uh, I've got the first verse. And the first verse sto story is in keeping with that poem because the first verse of that poem is in my life. So that does make sense. And then that Paul says, actually, if, if, you, if you're someone who knows how to write a song, which I am, I'm Paul. I'm going to write a song out of this. Um, and away he goes. So Yes, I, I, I think Paul's version here has the ring of truth. Um, mm. you know, and, and to be fair, he's been pretty consistent. 1973 interview, he was asked what his favorite Lennon McCartney song were. And he said, I liked In My Life. Those were words that John wrote and I wrote the tune to it. And then in uh, 2001, he said, uh, I think I wrote it, but John thinks he wrote it. So you know what? He can have it. One out of 200. Um, <laughs> but I do think, I do think, think, to be fair to Paul, and, you know, obviously I don't like to be fair to Paul. Um, <laughs> I, I do think uh, it, 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 his version has the ring of truth. Well, we could always ask the fun police, Ian MacDonald, who says... Um, 
you know, uh, it's uh, he talks about the song's angular verticality spanning an octave in typically wide and difficult leaps, which certainly shows off McCartney's touch more than Lennon's. But on the other hand, the chromatic descent via the minor subdominant in the second half of the verse suggests Lennon, keep me awake, Stephen. Uh, perhaps <laughs> McCartney did the first half of the verse and then in the second that there, I made it to the end of the sentence. Thanks, Ian. <laughs> so, so, old, so we can Ian say. So, we're, we're going to say it's a co-write. It's a definite co-write, and Paul deserves. I think we're, we're we're saying it's a co-write. If I had my bell, I would ring it. Um, it's the uh, but we're we're still on uh, the fourth recording session for Rubber Soul, uh, which is when it gets put down. Uh, it's a rhythm track with John on electric rhythm guitar, George on lead guitar riffs, Paul on bass, Ringo on drums. They keep take three, and then they overdub John's vocals with some double tracking. Ringo adds a tambourine. Uh, and then they left the, uh, the, uh, the, the solo session blank. And John suggests to George Martin, um, you know, why don't you look after that? And it's a classic. It's the, it's the George Martin classic. Here he comes. Boys, boys, I'm going to nip in. going to do a bit of sped up piano. Don't mind me. Um, and so he does do that four days later on October the 22nd before the band get into the studio on that day. And he, uh, he plays this Elizabethan solo, uh, which is a double speed piano solo, um, which he just kind of does on his own accord. Yeah. And you can you can hear do you that. you like th- that solo? I do like that solo. I don't mind that solo. I know some people have a huge problem with it, that it kind of is a bit jarring, but I do like it. I I do like it. It kind of fits with that slightly wistful, nostalgic uh, aspect to it. Um, Yeah, and I've I've heard the bootlegs of this session and you you can hear the normal speed piano and it doesn't sound like anything. You know, it actually sounds, it sounds almost as if I could play it. It's, um, and you think again, this is George Martin, able to hear this in his in his mind what this is going to sound like and um he did tinker about with a sort of organ solo like a hammond organ solo uh at the end of the session um but that was that was that was uh replaced and you think that when they say hammond organ solo i'm thinking something really cheesy like mr moonlight <laughs> you know that kind of thing so no i'm i'm perfectly yeah. perfectly happy uh perfectly happy with this and uh yeah he so he plays it down an octave and when it's sped up it's at the right speed but the other thing that speeding up does when you're dealing with tape is it kind of gives the gives a nice tone compression to the sound as well so it sounds quite tart and uh it's it's very it's very good and it becomes in my life the the song we all know and love and i think it is uh it is an important lennon song i i'm thinking of you know the 1988 imagine john lennon film where it kind of has you know a very important key uh, presence in it. And it also has a key presence right at the start of Beatles anthology. It's it's perhaps the first Beatles song we hear in full. It kind of gives this kind of overview before we launch into the whole anthology story. It's quite affecting. I think December 1980 gives it a resonance that perhaps it didn't have up to that point. Um, yeah. but, ha- but having said that, this is you know, the Beatles didn't play this live, but this is the song that George chose uh, for his 1974 live tour to do a Beatles song in a, in a wonderful, yes. wonderful, terrible, <laughs> awful, wretched version uh, of this song. I don't know what he was thinking. Um, in my life, I love God more. Yeah. Well, I can, see what, sings? I can see what he was thinking there, but I, I just, I, why he felt the need to do that, I don't know. The only version worse is uh, Sean Connery's spoken word version. <laughs> uh, if you ever, I, I don't recommend people looking at that up on YouTube, but we will put up a link. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's, it's, you know, worth remembering, folks, John Lennon writes this memory song when he's 25 years of age. But there is also a kind of a theme in the song of, you know, they realize that fame has not just geographically taken them away, but it's, 
you know, in, in terms of how they're able to exist, taking them away from the people who they who they were. Yeah. And I mean, you're, you're, you know, he's talking about people who are no longer in his life. So you, you're, mm. you're thinking, you know, it's logically he's talking about his mother. He's talking about Stuart Sutcliffe. So for somebody mm. at 25, you know, he has had a lot of loss in, in his life. Yep. Uh, and this is, I suppose, the most the first overt uh, referencing back to childhood. And, you know, with no good idea being left unused, I think the the germ for Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever starts with this song as well. This notion that you can pull things out from your past that, you know, that actually their own childhood and, and Liverpool itself has as much value as a source of inspiration as, I don't know, the Black Mountain Hills of Dakota or the West Coast of L.A. or whatever it is, that uh, it starts with this song here. Yes, I think that's right. I think that's right. So uh, as we leave this, it is now Monday, the 18th of October. Uh, it is uh, all the first week of recording of Rubber Soul. And so far in the can is Run For Your Life, Drive My Car, If I Needed Someone In My Life and a version of Norwegian Wood. But we're going to leave it there and we're going to rejoin the rollicking adventures of the Beatles trying to get Rubber Soul over the line in late 65 and all the other things that impinge on their time in the next episode of Nothing Is Real. Uh, we remain available in all the usual places. www.nothingisrealpod.com is the website. That's the gateway to all the stuff. Twitter, uh, at Beatles Pod, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group, all the Instagram stuff, all the uh, TikToks and all the rest are all available there. And don't forget, we've got bonus episodes and all sorts of ad-free treats over on Acast Plus uh, subscribers. If you subscribe on our It's All Too Much tier, there's a, a whole bunch of Nothing Is Real episodes over there exclusively for subscribers. But for now, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST+, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.